Chapter Five of Dombey and Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens. Chapter Five. Paul's Progress and Christening. Little Paul, suffering no contamination from the blood of the Toodles, grew stouter and stronger every day. Every day, too, he was more and more ardently cherished by Miss Tox, whose devotion was so far appreciated by Mr. Dombey that he began to regard her as a woman of great natural good sense, whose feelings did her credit and deserved encouragement. He was so lavish of this condescension, that he not only bowed to her in a particular manner on several occasions, but even entrusted such stately recognitions of her to his sister as, "'Pray tell your friend Louisa that she is very good,' or, "'Mention to Miss Tox, Louisa, that I am obliged to her,' specialties which made a deep impression on the lady thus distinguished." Whether Miss Tox conceived that having been selected by the fates to welcome the little Dombey before he was born in Kirby, Beard and Kirby's best mixed pins, it therefore naturally devolved upon her to greet him with all other forms of welcome in all other early stages of his existence, or whether her overflowing goodness induced her to volunteer into the domestic militia as a substitute in some sort for his deceased mamma or whether she was conscious of any other motives, are questions which in this stage of the firm's history herself only could have solved. Nor have they much bearing on the fact, of which there is no doubt, that Miss Tox's constancy and zeal were a heavy discouragement to Richard's, who lost flesh hourly under her patronage, and was in some danger of being superintended to death. Miss Tox was often in the habit of assuring Mrs. Chick that nothing could exceed her interest in all connected with the development of that sweet child, and an observer of Miss Tox's proceedings might have inferred so much without declaratory confirmation. She would preside over the innocent repasts of the young heir with ineffable satisfaction, almost with an air of joint proprietorship with Richard's in the entertainment. At the little ceremonies of the bath and toilet she assisted with enthusiasm. The administration of infantine doses of physic awakened all the active sympathy of her character, and being on one occasion secreted in a cupboard, whither she had fled in modesty, when Mr. Dombey was introduced into the nursery by his sister to behold his son in the course of preparation for bed, taking a short walk uphill over Richard's gown, in a short and airy linen jacket, Miss Tox was so transported beyond the ignorant present as to be unable to refrain from crying out, is he not beautiful, Mr. Dombey? Is he not a Cupid, sir? And then almost sinking behind the closet door with confusion and blushes. Louisa, said Mr. Dombey one day to his sister, I really think I must present your friend with some little token on the occasion of Paul's christening. She has exerted herself so warmly in the child's behalf from the first, and seems to understand her position so thoroughly—a very rare merit in this world, I am sorry to say—that it would really be agreeable to me to notice her." 
let it be no detraction from the merits of Miss Tox, to hint that in Mr. Dombey's eyes, as in some others that occasionally see the light, they only achieved that mighty piece of knowledge, the understanding of their own position, who showed a fitting reverence for his. It was not so much their merit that they knew themselves, as that they knew him, and bowed low before him. "'My dear Paul,' returned his sister, "'you do Miss Tox a justice, as a man of your penetration was sure I knew to do. I believe if there are three words in the English language for which she has a respect amounting almost to veneration, those words are Dombey and Son.' "'Well,' said Mr. Dombey, "'I believe it. It does Miss Tox credit.' "'And as to anything in the shape of a token, my dear Paul,' pursued his sister, "'all I can say is that anything you give Miss Tox will be hoarded and prized, I am sure, like a relic. But there is a way, my dear Paul, of showing your sense of Miss Tox's friendliness in a still more flattering and acceptable manner, if you should be so inclined.' "'How is that?' asked Mr. Dombey. "'Godfathers, of course.' continued Mrs. Chick, are important in point of connection and influence. "'I don't know why they should be to my son,' said Mr. Dombey, coldly. "'Very true, my dear Paul,' retorted Mrs. Chick, with an extraordinary show of animation, to cover the suddenness of her conversion. "'And spoken like yourself, I might have expected nothing else from you. I might have known that such would have been your opinion. Perhaps—' Here Mrs. Chick faltered again, as not quite comfortably feeling her way. "'Perhaps that is reason why you might have the less objection to allowing Miss Tox to be godmother to the dear thing, if it were only as deputy and, and proxy for someone else. That it would be received as a great honour and distinction, Paul, I need not say.' "'Louisa,' said Mr. Dombey, after a short pause, "'It is not to be supposed—' "'Certainly not!' cried Mrs. Chick, hastening to anticipate a refusal. "'I never thought it was!' Mr. Dombey looked at her impatiently. "'Don't, don't flurry me, my dear Paul,' said his sister, "'for, for that destroys me. I am far from strong. I have not been quite myself since poor dear Fanny departed.' Mr. Dombey glanced at the pocket-handkerchief which his sister applied to her eyes, and resumed. "'It is not to be supposed, I say.' "'And I say,' murmured Mrs. Chick, "'that I never thought it was.' "'Good heaven, Louisa!' said Mr. Dombey. "'No, my dear Paul,' she remonstrated, with tearful dignity, "'I must really be allowed to speak.' I am not so clever, or so reasoning, or so eloquent, or so, so anything, as you are. I know that very well. So much the worse for me. But if they were the last words I had to utter—and last words should be very solemn to you and me, Paul, after poor dear Fanny—I would still say I never thought it was. And what is more,' added Mrs. Chick, with increased dignity, as if she had withheld her crushing argument until now. I never did think it was. Mr. Dombey walked to the window, and back again. It is not to be supposed, Louisa, he said, 
Mrs. Chick had nailed her colours to the mast, and repeated, "'I know it isn't,' but he took no notice of it. "'But that there are many persons who, supposing that I recognised any claim at all in such a case, have a claim upon me superior to Miss Tox's. But I do not. I recognise no such thing.' Paul and myself will be able, when the time comes, to hold our own. The house, in other words, will be able to hold its own, and maintain its own, and hand down its own of itself, and without any such commonplace aids. The kind of foreign help which people usually seek for their children, I can afford to despise, being above it, I hope, so that Paul's infancy and childhood pass away well and I see him becoming qualified without waste of time for the career on which he is destined to enter. I am satisfied. He will make what powerful friends he pleases in after-life, when he is actively maintaining, and extending, if that is possible, the dignity and credit of the firm. Until then, I am enough for him, perhaps, and all in all. I have no wish that people should step in between us. I would much rather show my sense of the obliging conduct of a deserving person like your friend. Therefore, let it be so. And your husband and myself will do well enough for the other sponsors, I dare say. In the course of these remarks, delivered with great majesty and grandeur, Mr. Dombey had truly revealed the secret feelings of his breast, an indescribable distrust of anybody stepping in between himself and his son, a haughty dread of having any rival or partner in the boy's respect and deference, a sharp misgiving, recently acquired that he was not infallible in his power of bending and binding human wills, a sharp a jealousy of any second check or cross, these were at that time the master-keys of his soul. In all his life he had never made a friend. His cold and distant nature had neither sought one nor found one and now, when that nature concentrated its whole force so strongly on a partial scheme of parental interest and ambition, it seemed as if its icy current, instead of being released by this influence, and running clear and free, had thawed for but an instant to admit its burden, and then frozen with it into one unyielding block. Elevated thus to the godmothership of little Paul, in virtue of her insignificance, Miss Tox was from that hour chosen and appointed to office, and Mr. Dombey further signified his pleasure that the ceremony, already long delayed, should take place without further postponement. His sister, who had been far from anticipating so signal a success, withdrew as soon as she could to communicate it to her best of friends, and Mr. Dombey was left alone in his library. He had already laid his hand upon the bell-rope to convey his usual summons to Richard's, when his eye fell upon a writing-desk, belonging to his deceased wife, which had been taken, among other things, from a cabinet in her chamber. It was not the first time that his eye had lighted on it. He carried the key in his pocket, and he brought it to his table and opened it now, having previously locked the room door with a well-accustomed hand. From beneath a leaf of torn and cancelled scraps of paper he took one letter that remained entire. Involuntarily holding his breath as he opened this document, and, baiting in the stealthy action something of his arrogant demeanour, he sat down, resting his head upon one hand, and read it through. 
he read it slowly and attentively, and with a nice particularity to every syllable. Otherwise than as his great deliberation seemed unnatural, and perhaps the result of an effort equally great, he allowed no sign of emotion to escape him. When he had read it through, he folded and refolded it slowly several times, and tore it carefully into fragments. Checking his hand in the act of throwing these away, he put them in his pocket, as if unwilling to trust them even to the chances of being reunited and deciphered, and instead of ringing as usual for little Paul, he sat solitary all the evening in his cheerless room. There was anything but solitude in the nursery, for there Mrs. Chick and Miss Tox were enjoying a social evening, so much to the disgust of Miss Susan Nipper, that that young lady embraced every opportunity of making wry faces behind the door. Her feelings were so much excited on the occasion, that she found it indispensable to afford them this relief, even without having the comfort of any audience or sympathy whatever. As the knight-errants of old relieved their minds by carving their mistresses' names in the deserts, and wildernesses, and other savage places where there was no probability of there ever being anybody to read them, so did Miss Susan Nipper curl her snub-nose into drawers and wardrobes, put away winks of disparagement in cupboards, shed derisive squints into stone pitchers, and contradict and call names out in the passage. The two interlopers, however, blissfully unconscious of the young lady's sentiments, saw little Paul safe through all the stages of undressing, airy exercise, supper and bed, and then sat down to tea before the fire. The two children now lay, through the good offices of Polly, in one room, and it was not until the ladies were established at their tea-table that, happening to look towards the little beds, they thought of Florence. "'How sound she sleeps!' said Miss Tox. "'Why, you know, my dear, she takes a great deal of exercise in the course of the day,' returned Mrs. Chick, playing about little Paul so much. "'She is a curious child,' said Miss Tox. "'My dear,' retorted Mrs. Chick, in a low voice, "'her mamma all over.' "'Indeed,' said Miss Tox. "'Ah, oh, dear me!' A tone of most extraordinary compassion Miss Tox said it in, though she had no distinct idea why, except that it was expected of her. "'Florence will never, never, never be a Dombey,' said Mrs. Chick. "'Not if she lives to be a thousand years old.' Miss Tox elevated her eyebrows and was again full of commiseration. "'I quite fret and worry myself about her,' said Mrs. Chick, with a sigh of modest merit. "'I really don't see what is to become of her when she grows older, or what position she is to take. She don't gain on her papa in the least. How can one expect she should, when she is so very unlike a Dombey?' Miss Tox looked as if she saw no way out of such a cogent argument as that at all. "'And the child, you see,' said Mrs. Chick, in deep confidence, "'has poor dear Fanny's nature. She'll never make an effort in after-life, I'll venture to say.' Never. She'll never wind and twine herself about her papa's heart like, uh, like the ivy, suggested Miss Tox. Like the ivy, Mrs. Chick assented. Never. She'll never glide and nestle into the bosom of her papa's affections like the startled fawn, suggested Miss Tox. Like the startled fawn, said Mrs. Chick. 
never poor fanny yet how i loved her you must not distress yourself my dear said miss tox in a soothing voice now really you have too much feeling we have all our faults said mrs chick weeping and shaking her head i dare say we have i never was blind to hers i never said i was far from it yet how i loved her what a satisfaction it was to mrs chick a commonplace piece of folly enough compared with whom her sister-in-law had been a very angel of womanly intelligence and gentleness to patronize and be tender to the memory of that lady in exact pursuance of her conduct to her in her lifetime and to thoroughly believe herself and take herself in and make herself uncommonly comfortable on the strength of her toleration what a mighty pleasant virtue toleration should be when we are right to be so very pleasant when we are wrong and quite unable to demonstrate how we come to be invested with the privilege of exercising it mrs chick was yet drying her eyes and shaking her head when richards made bold to caution her that miss florence was awake and sitting in her bed she had risen as the nurse said and the lashes of her eyes were wet with tears but no one saw them glistening save polly no one else leant over her and whispered soothing words to her or was near enough to hear the flutter of her beating heart oh dear nurse said the child looking earnestly up in her face let me lie by my brother why my pet said richards oh i think he loves me cried the child wildly let me lie by him pray do mrs chick interposed with some motherly words about going to sleep like a dear but florence repeated her supplication with a frightened look and in a voice broken by sobs and tears i'll not wake him she said covering her face and hanging down her head i'll only touch him with my hand and go to sleep oh pray pray let me lie by my brother to-night for i believe he's fond of me richard took her without a word and carrying her to the little bed in which the infant was sleeping laid her down by his side she crept as near him as she could without disturbing his rest and stretching out one arm so that it timidly embraced his neck and hiding her face on the other over which her damp and scattered hair fell loose lay motionless poor little thing said miss tox she has been dreaming i dare say dreaming perhaps of loving tones for ever silent of loving eyes for ever closed of loving arms again wound round her and relaxing in that dream within the dam which no tongue can relate seeking perhaps in dreams some natural comfort for a heart deeply and sorely wounded though so young a child's and finding it perhaps in dreams if not in waking cold substantial truth this trivial incident had so interrupted the current of conversation that it was difficult of resumption and mrs chick moreover had been so affected by the contemplation of her own tolerant nature that she was not in spirits the two friends accordingly soon made an end of their tea 
and a servant was dispatched to fetch a hackney cabriolet for Miss Tox. Miss Tox had great experience in hackney cabs, and her starting in one was generally a work of time, as she was systematic in the preparatory arrangements. "'Have the goodness, if you please, Towlinson,' said Miss Tox, "'first of all to carry out a pen and ink, and take his number legibly.' "'Yes, miss,' said Towlinson. "'Then, if you please, Towlinson,' said Miss Tox, "'have the goodness to turn the cushion, which—' said Miss Tox apart to Mrs. Chick, is generally damp, my dear. Yes, miss, said Towlinson. I'll trouble you also, if you please, Towlinson, said Miss Tox, with this card and this shilling. He's to drive to the card, and is to understand that he will not on any account have more than the shilling. No, miss, said Towlinson. "'And I'm sorry to give you so much trouble, Towlinson,' said Miss Tox, looking at him pensively. "'Not at all, miss,' said Towlinson. "'Mention to the man, then, if you please, Towlinson,' said Miss Tox, "'that the lady's uncle is a magistrate, and that if he gives her any of his impertinence, he will be punished terribly.' You can pretend to say that, if you please, Towlinson, in a friendly way, and because you know it was done to another man who died. Certainly, miss, said Towlinson. And now, good night to my sweet, sweet, sweet godson, said Miss Tox, with a soft shower of kisses at each repetition of the adjective. And Louisa, my dear friend, Promise me to take a little something warm before you go to bed, and not to distress yourself. It was with extreme difficulty that Nipper, the black-eyed, who looked on steadfastly, contained herself at this crisis, and until the subsequent departure of Mrs. Chick. But the nursery being at length free of visitors, she made herself some recompense for her late restraint. "'You might keep me in a straight waistcoat for six weeks,' said Nipper, "'and when I got it off, I'd only be more aggravated. "'Who ever heard the like of them two griffins, Mrs. Richards?' "'And then a talk of having been dreaming, poor dear,' said Polly. "'Oh, you beauties!' cried Susan Nipper, "'affecting to salute the door by which the ladies had departed. "'Never be dumby, won't she? "'It's to be hoped she won't. "'We don't want any more such.' "'One's enough.' "'Don't wake the children, Susan, dear,' said Polly. "'I'm very much beholden to you, Mrs. Richards,' said Susan, who was not by any means discriminating in her wrath, "'and really feel it is an honour to receive your commands, being a black slave and a mulotter, Mrs. Richards. If there's any other orders you can give me, pray mention them.' "'Nonsense orders,' said Polly. "'Oh, bless your heart, Mrs. Richards.' cried Susan. Temporaries always orders permanencies here, didn't you know that? Why, wherever was you born, Mrs. Richards? But wherever you was born, Mrs. Richards, pursued Spitfire, shaking her head resolutely, and whenever and however, which is best known yourself, you may bear in mind, please, that it's one thing to give orders and quite another to take em. 
A person may tell a person to dive off a bridgehead foremost into five and forty feet of water, Mrs. Richards, but a person may be very far from diving. There now, said Polly, you're angry because you're a good little thing, and fond of Miss Florence, and yet you turn round on me because there's nobody else. It's very easy for some to keep their tempers and be soft-spoken, Mrs. Richards, returned Susan, slightly mollified, when their child's made as much of as a prince, and is petted and patted till it wishes its friends further. But when a sweet young pretty innocent, that never ought to have a cross word spoken to or of it, is run down, the case is very different indeed. My goodness gracious me, Miss Floy, you naughty sinful child, if you don't shut your eyes this minute, I'll call in them hobgoblins that lives in the cockloft to come and eat you up alive. Here Miss Nipper made a horrible lowing, supposed to issue from a conscientious goblin of the bull species, impatient to discharge the severe duty of his position. Having further composed her young charge by covering her head with the bedclothes, and making three or four angry dabs at the pillow, she folded her arms, and screwed up her mouth, and sat looking at the fire for the rest of the evening. Though little Paul was said, in nursery phrase, to take a deal of notice for his age, he took as little notice of all this as of the preparations for his christening on the next day but one, which nevertheless went on about him as to his personal apparel, and that of his sister and the two nurses, with great activity. Neither did he, on the arrival of the appointed morning, show any sense of its importance, being, on the contrary, unusually inclined to sleep, and unusually inclined to take it ill in his attendance that they dressed him to go out. It happened to be an iron-grey autumnal day, with a shrewd east wind blowing, a day in keeping with the proceedings. Mr. Dombey represented in himself the wind, the shade, and the autumn of the christening. He stood in his library to receive the company, as hard and cold as the weather, and when he looked out through the glass-room, at the trees in the little garden, their brown and yellow leaves came fluttering down, as if he blighted them. Ugh! They were black, cold rooms, and seemed to be in mourning, like the inmates of the house. The books, precisely matched as to size, and drawn up in line like soldiers, looked in their cold, hard, slippery uniforms, as if they had but one idea among them, and that was a freezer. The bookcase, glazed and locked, repudiated all familiarities. Mr. Pitt, in bronze on the top, with no trace of his celestial origin about him, guarded the unattainable treasure like an enchanted moor. A dusty urn at each high corner, dug up from an ancient tomb, preached desolation and decay, as from two pulpits, and the chimney-glass, reflecting Mr. Dombey in his portrait at one blow, seemed fraught with melancholy meditations. The stiff and stark fire-irons appeared to claim a nearer relationship than anything else there to Mr. Dombey, with his buttoned coat, his white cravat, his heavy gold watch-chain, and his creaking boots. But this was before the arrival of Mr. and Mrs. Chick, his lawful relatives, who soon presented themselves. "'My dear Paul,' Mrs. Chick murmured, as she embraced him, "'the beginning, I hope, of many joyful days.' "'Thank you, Louisa,' said Mr. Dombey, grimly. "'How do you do, Mr. John?' "'How do you do, sir?' said Chick. He gave Mr. Dombey his hand, as if he feared it might electrify him. 
Mr. Dombey took it as if it were a fish, or seaweed, or some such clammy substance, and immediately returned it to him with exalted politeness. "'Perhaps, Louisa,' said Mr. Dombey, slightly turning his head in his cravat, as if it were a socket, "'you would have preferred a fire?' "'Oh, my dear Paul, no,' said Mrs. Chick, who had much ado to keep her teeth from chattering. "'Not for me.' "'Mr. John,' said Mr. Dombey, "'you are not sensible of any chill?' Mr. John, who had already got both his hands in his pockets over the wrists, and was on the very threshold of that same canine chorus which had given Mrs. Chick so much offence on a former occasion, protested that he was perfectly comfortable. He added in a low voice, "'With my when he was providentially stopped by Towlinson, who announced, "'Miss Tox!' and enter that fair enslaver with a blue nose and indescribably frosty face referable to her being very thinly clad in a maze of fluttering odds and ends, to do honour to the ceremony. "'How do you do, Miss Tox?' said Mr. Dombey. Miss Tox, in the midst of her spreading gauzes, went down altogether like an opera-glass shutting up, she curtsied so low, in acknowledgment of Mr. Dombey's advancing a step or two to meet her. "'I can never forget this occasion, sir,' said Miss Tox, softly. "'Tis impossible.' "'My dear Louisa, I can hardly believe the evidence of my senses.' If Miss Tox could believe the evidence of one of her senses, it was a very cold day. That was quite clear. She took an early opportunity of promoting the circulation in the tip of her nose by secretly chafing it with her pocket-handkerchief, lest, by its very low temperature, it should disagreeably astonish the baby when she came to kiss it. The baby soon appeared, carried in great glory by Richards, while Florence, in custody of that active young constable Susan Nipper, brought up the rear. Though the whole nursery party were dressed by this time in lighter mourning than at first, there was enough in the appearance of the bereaved children to make the day no brighter. The baby, too, it might have been Miss Tox's nose, began to cry, thereby, as it happened, preventing Mr. Chick from the awkward fulfilment of a very honest purpose he had, which was to make much of Florence. For this gentleman, insensible to the superior claims of a perfect Dombey, perhaps on account of having the honour to be united to a Dombey himself, and being familiar with the excellence, really liked her, and showed that he liked her, and was about to show it in his own way now, when Paul cried, and his helpmate stopped him short. "'Now, Florence, child!' said her aunt briskly. "'What are you doing, love? Show yourself to him. Engage his attention, my dear.' The atmosphere became, or might have become, colder and colder, when Mr. Dombey stood frigidly watching his little daughter, who, clapping her hands and standing on tiptoe before the throne of his son and heir, lured him to bend down from his high estate and look at her. Some honest act of Richard's may have aided the effect, but he did look down and held his peace. As his sister hid behind her nurse, he followed her with his eyes, and when she peeped out with a merry cry, to him, he sprang up and crowed lustily, laughing outright when she ran in upon him, and seeming to fondle her curls with his tiny hands while she smothered him with kisses. Was Mr. Dombey pleased to see this? He testified no pleasure by the relaxation of a nerve, but outward tokens of any kind of feelings were unusual with him. 
If any sunbeam stole into the room to light the children at their play, it never reached his face. He looked on so fixedly and coldly that the warm light vanished even from the laughing eyes of little Florence, when at last they happened to meet his. It was a dull grey autumn day indeed, and in a minute's pause and silence that took place, the leaves fell sorrowfully. "'Mr. John,' said Mr. Dombey, referring to his watch, and assuming his hat and gloves, "'take my sister, if you please. My arm to-day is Miss Tox's. You had better go first with Master Paul, Richards. Be very careful.' In Mr. Dombey's carriage, Dombey and Son, Miss Tox, Mrs. Chick, Richards, and Florence. In a little carriage following it, Susan Nipper and the owner, Mr. Chick. Susan looking out of window, without intermission, as a relief from the embarrassment of confronting the large face of that gentleman, and thinking whenever anything rattled that he was putting up in paper an appropriate pecuniary compliment for herself. Once upon the road to church, Mr. Dombey clapped his hands for the amusement of his son, at which instance of parental enthusiasm Miss Tox was enchanted. But exclusive of this incident, the chief difference between the christening party and a party in a mourning coach consisted in the colours of the carriage and horses. Arrived at the church steps, they were received by a portentous beadle, Mr. Dombey dismounting first to help the ladies out, and standing near him at the church door, looked like another beadle, a beadle less gorgeous, but more dreadful, the beadle of private life, the beadle of our business and our bosoms. Miss Tox's hand trembled as she slipped it through Mr. Dombey's arm, and felt herself escorted up the steps, preceded by a cocked hat and a Babylonian collar. It seemed for a moment like that other solemn institution. "'Wilt thou have this man, Lucretia?' "'Yes, I will.' "'Please to bring the child in quick, out of the air there,' whispered the beadle, holding open the inner door of the church. Little Paul might have asked, with Hamlet, into my grave, so chill and earthy was the place. The tall shrouded pulpit and reading-desk, the dreary perspective of empty pews stretching away under the galleries, and empty benches mounting to the roof and lost in the shadow of the great grim organ, the dusty matting and cold stone slabs, the grisly free seats in the aisles, and the damp corner by the bell-rope, where the black trestles used for funerals were stowed away, along with some shovels and baskets, and a coil or two of deadly-looking rope, the strange, unusual, uncomfortable smell, and the cadaverous light, were all in unison. It was a cold and dismal scene. "'There's a wedding just on, sir,' said the beadle. "'But it'll be over directly, if you'll walk into the westry here.' Before he turned again to lead the way, he gave Mr. Dombey a bow and a half-smile of recognition, importing that he, the beadle, remembered to have had the pleasure of attending on him when he buried his wife, and hoped he had enjoyed himself since. The very wedding looked dismal as they passed in front of the altar. The bride was too old, and the bridegroom too young, and a superannuated bow with one eye and an eyeglass stuck in its blank companion was giving away the lady, while the friends were shivering. In the vestry the fire was smoking, and an overaged and overworked and underpaid attorney's clerk, making a search 
was running his forefinger down the parchment pages of an immense register, one of a long series of similar volumes, gorged with burials. Over the fireplace was a ground plan of the vaults underneath the church, and Mr. Chick, skimming the literary portion of it aloud, by way of enlivening the company, read the reference to Mrs. Dombey's tomb in full, before he could stop himself. After another cold interval, a wheezy little pew-opener, afflicted with an asthma, appropriate to the churchyard, if not to the church, summoned them to the font, a rigid marble basin which seemed to have been playing a churchyard game at cup and ball with its matter-of-fact pedestal, and to have been just at that moment caught on the top of it. Here they waited some little time, while the marriage party enrolled themselves, and meanwhile the wheezy little pew-opener, partly in consequence of her infirmity, and partly that the marriage party might not forget her, went about the building, coughing like a grampus. Presently the clerk, the only cheerful-looking object there, and he was an undertaker, came up with a jug of warm water, and said something, as he poured it into the font, about taking the chill off, which millions of gallons boiling hot could not have done for the occasion. Then the clergyman, an amiable and mild-looking young curate, but obviously afraid of the baby, appeared like the principal character in a ghost story, a tall figure all in white, at sight of whom Paul rent the air with his cries, and never left off again till he was taken out, black in the face. Even when that event had happened, to the great relief of everybody, he was heard under the portico during the rest of the ceremony, now fainter, now louder, now hushed, now bursting forth again with an irrepressible sense of his wrongs. This so distracted the attention of the two ladies, that Mrs. Chick was constantly deploying into the centre aisle to send out messages by the pew-opener, while Miss Tox kept her prayer-book open at the gunpowder plot, and occasionally read responses from that service. During the whole of these proceedings, Mr. Dombey remained as impassive and gentlemanly as ever, and perhaps assisted in making it so cold, that the young curate smoked at the mouth as he read. The only time that he unbent his visage in the least was when the clergyman, in delivering, very unaffectedly and simply, the closing exhortation relative to the future examination of the child by the sponsors, happened to rest his eye on Mr. Chick, and then Mr. Dombey might have been seen to express by a majestic look that he would like to catch him at it. It might have been well for Mr. Dombey if he had thought of his own dignity a little less and had thought of the great origin and purpose of the ceremony in which he took so formal and so stiff a part a little more. His arrogance contrasted strangely with its history. When it was all over, he again gave his arm to Miss Tox, and conducted her to the vestry, where he informed the clergyman how much pleasure it would have given him to have solicited the honour of his company at dinner, but for the unfortunate state of his household affairs. The register signed, and the fees paid, and the pew-opener, whose cough was very bad again, remembered, and the beadle gratified, and the sexton, who was accidentally on the doorsteps, looking with great interest at the weather, not forgotten. They got into the carriage again, and drove home in the same bleak fellowship. There they found Mr. Pitt turning up his nose at a cold collation, set forth in a cold pomp of glass and silver, and looking more like a dead dinner lying in state than a social refreshment. On their arrival Miss Tox produced a mug for her godson, and Mr. Chick a knife and fork and spoon in a case. Mr. Dombey also produced a bracelet for Miss Tox, 
and on the receipt of this token Miss Tox was tenderly affected. "'Mr. John,' said Mr. Dombey, "'will you take the bottom of the table, if you please?' "'What have you got there, Mr. John?' "'I've got a cold fillet of veal here, sir,' replied Mr. Chick, rubbing his numbed hands hard together. "'What have you got there, sir?' "'This,' returned Mr. Dombey, "'is some cold preparation of calf's head, I think. "'I see cold fowls, ham, patties, salad, lobster. "'Miss Tox will do me the honour of taking some wine. "'Champagne to Miss Tox.' "'There was a toothache in everything. "'The wine was so bitter cold "'that it forced a little scream from Miss Tox, "'which she had great difficulty in turning into a hem. "'The veal had come from such an airy pantry.' at the first taste of it had struck a sensation as of cold lead to Mr. Chick's extremities. Mr. Dombey alone remained unmoved. He might have been hung up for sale at a Russian fair as a specimen of a frozen gentleman. The prevailing influence was too much even for his sister. She made no effort at flattery or small talk, and directed all her efforts to looking as warm as she could. "'Well, sir,' said Mr. Chick, making a desperate plunge, after a long silence, and filling a glass of sherry. "'I shall drink this, if you allow me, sir, to little Paul.' "'Bless him,' murmured Miss Tox, taking a sip of wine. "'Dear little Dombey,' murmured Mrs. Chick. "'Mr. John,' said Mr. Dombey, with severe gravity, "'my son would feel and express himself obliged to you.' I have no doubt, if he could appreciate the favour you have done him. He will prove in time to come, I trust, equal to any responsibility that the obliging dispositions of his relations and friends, in private, or the onerous nature of our position in public, may impose upon him. The tone in which this was said, admitting of nothing more, Mr. Chick relapsed into low spirits and silence. Not so Miss Tox, who, having listened to Mr. Dombey, with even a more emphatic attention than usual, and with a more expressive tendency of her head to one side, now leant across the table, and said to Mrs. Chick softly, "'Louisa! My dear,' said Mrs. Chick, "'onerous nature of our position in public may—I have forgotten the exact term.' "'Expose him to—' said Mrs. Chick. "'Pardon me, my dear,' returned Miss Tox. "'I think not. It was more rounded and flowing. "'Obliging disposition of relations and friends in private, "'or onerous nature of position in public, may impose upon him.' "'Impose upon him, to be sure,' said Mrs. Chick. Miss Tox struck her delicate hands together lightly in triumph, and added, casting up her eyes, "'Eloquence, indeed!' Mr. Dombey, in the meanwhile, had issued orders for the attendance of Richards, who now entered curtsying, but without the baby, Paul being asleep after the fatigues of the morning. Mr. Dombey, having delivered a glass of wine to this vassal, addressed her in the following words. 
Miss Tox, previously settling her head on one side, and making other little arrangements for engraving them on her heart. "'During the six months or so, Richards, which have seen you an inmate of this house, you have done your duty. Desiring to connect some little service to you with this occasion, I considered how I could best effect that object, and I also advised with my sister, Mrs. Chick.' interposed the gentleman of that name. "'Oh, hush, if you please,' said Miss Tox. "'I was about to say to you, Richards,' resumed Mr. Dombey, with an appalling glance at Mr. John, "'that I was further assisted in my decision by the recollection of a conversation I held with your husband in this room, on the occasion of your being hired, when he disclosed to me the melancholy fact that your family, himself at the head, were sunk and steeped in ignorance. Richards quailed under the magnificence of the reproof. "'I am far from being friendly,' pursued Mr. Dombey, "'to what is called by persons of levelling sentiments general education. But it is necessary that the inferior classes should continue to be taught to know their position and to conduct themselves properly. So far I approve of schools.' Having the power of nominating a child on the foundation of an ancient establishment called, from a worshipful company, the Charitable Grinders, where not only is a wholesome education bestowed upon the scholars, but where a dress and badge is likewise provided for them, I have, first communicating through Mrs. Chick with your family, nominated your eldest son to an existing vacancy, and he has this day, I am informed, assumed the habit. The number of her son, I believe," said Mr. Dombey, turning to his sister and speaking of the child as if he were a hackney coach, is one hundred and forty-seven. Louisa, you can tell her. One hundred and forty-seven," said Mrs. Chick. "The dress, Richards, is a nice warm blue blaze-tailed coat and cap, turned up with orange-coloured binding, red worsted stockings, and very strong leather small clothes." "'One might wear the articles oneself,' said Mrs. Chick, with enthusiasm, "'and be grateful.' "'There, Richards,' said Miss Tox, "'now, indeed, you may be proud. "'The charitable grinders.' "'I'm sure I'm very much obliged, sir,' returned Richards, faintly, "'and take it very kind that you should remember my little ones.' At the same time a vision of Byla as a charitable grinder, with his very small legs encased in the serviceable clothing described by Mrs. Chick, swam before Richard's eyes and made them water. "'I'm very glad to see you have so much feeling, Richards,' said Miss Tox. "'It makes one almost hope it really does,' said Mrs. Chick, who prided herself on taking trustful views of human nature, "'that there may yet be some faint spark of gratitude and right feeling in the world.' Richards deferred to these compliments by curtsying and murmuring her thanks, but finding it quite impossible to recover her spirits from the disorder into which they had been thrown by the image of her son in his precocious nether garments, she gradually approached the door, and was heartily relieved to escape by it. Such temporary indications of a partial thaw that had appeared with her, vanished with her, and the frost set in again, as cold and hard as ever. Mr. Chick was twice heard to hum a tune at the bottom of the table, 
but on both occasions it was a fragment of the dead march in Saul. The party seemed to get colder and colder, and to be gradually resolving itself into a congealed and solid state, like the collation round which it was assembled. At length Mrs. Chick looked at Miss Tox, and Miss Tox returned the look, and they both rose and said it was really time to go. Mr. Dombey receiving this announcement with perfect equanimity, they took leave of that gentleman, and presently departed under the protection of Mr. Chick, who, when they had turned their backs upon the house, and left its master in his usual solitary state, put his hands in his pockets, threw himself back in the carriage, and whistled. With a hey-ho chevy, all through conveying into his face as he did so an expression of such gloomy and terrible defiance that Mrs. Chick dared not protest, or in any way molest him. Richards, though she had little Paul on her lap, could not forget her own firstborn. She felt it was ungrateful, but the influence of the day fell even on the charitable grinders, and she could hardly help regarding his pewter badge, number 147, as somehow a part of its formality and sternness. She spoke, too, in the nursery of his blessed legs, and was again troubled by his spectre in uniform. "'I don't know what I wouldn't give,' said Polly, "'to see the poor little dear before he gets used to him.' "'Why, then, I'll tell you what, Mrs. Richards,' retorted Nipper, who had been admitted to her confidence. "'See him, and make your mind easy.' "'Mr. Dombey wouldn't like it,' said Polly. "'Oh, wouldn't he, Mrs. Richards?' retorted Nipper. "'He'd like it very much, I think, when he was asked.' "'You wouldn't ask him, I suppose, at all?' said Polly. "'No, Mrs. Richards, quite contrary,' returned Susan. "'And them two inspectors, Tox and Chick, not intended to be on duty to-morrow, as I heard him say, me and Miss Floyd will go along with you to-morrow morning, and welcome, Mrs. Richards, if you like, for we may as well walk there as up and down a street and better, too. Polly rejected the idea pretty stoutly at first, but by little and little she began to entertain it, as she entertained more and more distinctly the forbidden pictures of her children and her own home. At length, arguing that there could be no great harm in calling for a moment at the door, she yielded to the nipper proposition. The matter being settled thus, little Paul began to cry most piteously, as if he had a foreboding that no good would come of it. "'What's the matter with the child?' asked Susan. "'He's cold, I think,' said Polly, walking with him to and fro and hushing him. It was a bleak autumnal afternoon indeed, and as she walked and hushed and— glancing through the dreary windows, pressed the little fellow closer to her breast. The withered leaves came showering down. End of chapter 5